I don't know if there are any other children of the 90s here this morning, but if you're a child of the 90s, I think this shirt is going to mean something to you. Anyone remember these? Yeah? Like two, three people? That's good. Okay. So I think the baseball one, and, and for those of you who can't you know, read it or if you're listening on the podcast, baseball is life. The rest is just details. You see that date there, 1992. All right, so this is a 90s, this is the essence of a 90s product. And baseball, I think, was the first one. And then there were all sorts of ones, you know, soccer, basketball, football is life. And the rest is just details. Um, I don't know if you've ever, ever seen these shirts. Um, I used to see these shirts all the time when I was my uh, late elementary and teenage life in the 90s. And I never liked them. I never, even though I love baseball, I never liked this shirt. And I never liked this shirt because I became a Christian when I was fairly young. And I knew there was something wrong with this. I knew there was something wrong with this, even if it's sort of tongue in cheek and just fun and, and, you know, whatever. As much as I love baseball and I was still young enough to have delusions of being a professional baseball player, I knew that there was something wrong with this. And that's because. Um, there is something that's life, but it's not baseball. And, and what we're going to see this morning in the text of John, we're going to be in John 6, 22 through 71. So we've got a lot of ground to cover. We're going to get through it pretty efficiently. Um, we won't be able to get into all the details of every single part of the text just because we're trying to not get bogged down too much, get the big sense of the big picture. Here's, here's the sermon um, title here this morning. We are going to be looking at seven questions plus one in John 6, 22 through 71. There's, there's this dialogue and interaction between Jesus and the people he's talking to. And, and they're going to be asking him questions, and he's going to be responding with answers. And we're going to see seven questions plus one. And here's the bottom line. The bottom line this morning is that Jesus is life. And the rest is just details. You all could have seen that. Once we got into it, you knew where we were going with that. But this really is the point of this text. This really is the point of this passage. Jesus is life, and the rest is just details. Now, details, that doesn't mean they're not important. Um, it just means they're not primary. So what are the details of life? Well, details are like going to work or cleaning your house or uh, practicing piano or, you know, spending time with people you care about. Those are really important things, doing laundry and just the, the mundane things of life and the big things of life. All of those things are incredibly important and necessary. Uh, you know, if you, if, if you are in our house and, and if laundry doesn't get done, now I don't do a lot of laundry, but, but if laundry doesn't get done for like two days in a row, it's like, it's a chaotic nightmare in our house, right? And that your house is probably the same way. If something doesn't get done, just for a few days, things begin to fall apart. So those details are important. That doesn't, so when we say Jesus' life and the rest is just details, it doesn't mean we live in sort of this spiritual la-la land and we don't do anything else. No, what it means is all of those things are subordinate and reordered in terms of their priority in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what Jesus offers to us. The details aren't unimportant. They are just not primary. That's what we're going to see in the passage this morning. We're going to get dive into the text in just a second, but before we do that, would you just take a moment and let's just pray together and ask God to speak to us through the Word of God. 
Father in heaven, I ask that your spirit would have freedom to speak through the word that he inspired so many hundreds of years ago through the Apostle John, that you would use the the notes and the things that I prepared to say to speak faithfully about what your word says, and Lord, that you would would reach into the hearts of every person here, and and you would apply this to their lives. And um, if there's anything that I don't need to say, um, that I've thought to say or prepared to say, that you would just edit that out. And if there's anything I need to say, that your spirit would lead me to say it, that I would be faithful to your word, and you would build your church through your word, as you've promised to do in Jesus' name. Amen. So the story starts with setting the scene. Setting the scene here in John 6, 22 through 24. So in John 6.22, that comes after John 6.21 and, and the first part of John 6 where we saw Jesus feed 5,000 people, 5,000 men, so probably more like 10 to 20,000 people with just a, a, a few loaves and fish and do this miracle of, of provision. And, and then we saw Jesus walk on the water and to declare, declared himself to the disciples, I am, I am, the, the, he is the God of the Old Testament. The next day now, so the disciples and Jesus got in the boat. They got to the other side of the the Sea of Galilee. It says the crowd stayed on the other side of the sea, and they saw there had only been one boat. They also saw that Jesus had not boarded the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone off alone. Some boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they went to Capernaum looking for Jesus. So this is like Sea of Galilee, first century Uber, right? So they see these boats, they hop in, they charter the ride, and they get back across to the other side of the sea. They're, they're, they're wondering where Jesus went, where his disciples went. They knew, so they knew that Jesus um, had stayed behind. They saw the disciples maybe go off, but now Jesus is gone too. They don't know exactly what's happened. We know what happened. Jesus walked on the water met his disciples, revealed himself, then got in the boat, and they made it to the other side. But they don't know what happened, so they get in the boats, charter, you know, flag them down, pay the men, the, you know, the guys this money uh, to take them back across the lake, and they go to Capernaum looking for Jesus. And this sets up the first question, the first question. So question one, there's going to be a series of seven questions plus one. So the first question, question one, they found Jesus on the other side of the sea. They said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Rabbi, when did you come here? Now, if you've been around the Bible or been around the Gospels, the biographies of Jesus any amount of time, um, you know that Jesus is really good at what they teach politicians to do. I don't mean that in a negative way, but he rejects the premise of the question. He rejects the premise of the question. So they, they you know, like if, if you ever hear someone coach a politician, that's why they never answer the question that they're asked, right? Because they're coached to reject the premise of the question and to answer the question that they wish had been asked. Now, when politicians do that, it's sort of slippery and slimy. When Jesus does it, it's because he knows what people actually need to hear. So he rejects the premise of their question, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now, when, he says, when they say rabbi, that's a term of respect. They're, 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 they're acknowledging that he has some sort of authority, but they don't really understand who he is, even after all that he's done. So this is what Jesus says, answer number one to question one. Jesus answered them, truly I, truly I say to you, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. 
So he's saying, you're seeking me for the wrong reason. It's not because you saw me do a miracle, but simply because you can get something from me. That it, it's, it's not even like they're wanting to see Jesus do something amazing. They want to see Jesus do something amazing that gives them a tangible benefit. He says, don't work for the food that perishes, for the food, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal of approval. Um, and so Jesus is saying, you're, you're seeking me for the wrong reason. You're seeking me for the wrong reason. You didn't, not because I did a miracle, you're seeking me because you want more to eat. And, and I, so often Christianity in our culture has been perverted to making Jesus like this cosmic genie who, who offers to people something to make their life what they want it to be. Sometimes this is called the prosperity gospel, that Jesus offers health, wealth, you know, and, and he, he, he offers to people the good life in a, in a material sense. And, the, and this, is, this is a problem as old as Jesus' ministry, thousands of years old, and that is that people want what Jesus can give them, but they don't want Jesus himself. He says, you're looking for me not because you saw the sign, because you ate the loaves. And he warns them, and he, he exhorts them. He says, work not for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts eternally. Now, works were a very important part. These, these people were all Jewish of Jewish life. It was a central part of what they believed that God wanted from them, was to do good works. And Jesus is, is using that. He's saying, don't work. So what are they doing? They're working, they're laboring, they're looking. They're, they're, it's like, you know, I don't know if you ever lost you want to watch something and you lose your remote, right? It's like you never look for something. You know, it's like you're tearing the house apart and you're looking for that remote. They're looking for this. They're, 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 they're laboring. They're looking to find Jesus because they want to get something from Jesus. He says, you're working so hard to find me for the wrong reason. Don't work for this, but work for the bread that will last for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. A seal was an imprint that produced an exact likeness. So Jesus Christ is God the Son in human nature. So Jesus in his human nature reveals the fullness of God because he is fully God and fully man. Now they go to question two. Question two, they said to him, in light of this, he says, don't work for the food that perishes. What must we do to be doing the works of God? It's John 6, 28. So, so what, are, what, they're, what they're asking, what does God want from us? What does God want from us? And that's a legitimate and good question to ask, really. Like, what does God want from me? What does God want me to do? That's a good starting place, but, but it's not a good ending place. It's not really, it's, it's sort of asking the wrong question. It's, it's, again, the wrong question for the wrong reason. Because what they're looking for is what they can do to make God please, to please God, to make God happy with them, to honor God. And, and, and the motivation may be good, but it actually it, it is becoming about them, not about God. And this is what Jesus says. Answer number two, Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. This is the work of God. What does God want from you? What Jesus is doing, he's playing on a faith versus works contrast. This is the work of God. Not that you do anything, but you believe. The work of God is faith. 
And now that doesn't mean faith is something that we work or earn for our salvation. What it means is what God desires from us above all things that we would believe in Christ. And there's also a double sort of implication here when he says this is the work of God. He's implying that faith is not something we produce in ourselves, but faith itself is a gift. Faith itself is something that God gives us. And we know that's true because of what he's going to say in just a few verses, that God himself has to give us faith because naturally we are born as unbelievers. Our default setting is to not believe in God, to not believe in the one God has sent, Jesus Christ. Our natural inclination, especially in our culture, is to be skeptical. So he's saying this is the work of God that you believe in the one he has sent. They ask, now they ask a third question, question three. You want us to believe in you, you want us to believe in you, then what sign do you do and believe in you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So, so he's saying, well, if you want us to believe in you, what have you done to show that you have a credible witness, you're a credible person that we can believe in you? And, and kind of what they're implying is as he gave them bread from heaven to eat, he had done this thing the day before where he had fed them and they'd done this miracle and they said, that's great, but you know, Moses did that for 40 years. For 40 years in the wilderness, Moses led the people and, and there was bread from heaven. Yeah, it's great you did a miracle, but we're not really sure. Maybe, maybe it was just sleight of hand. Maybe it was just a one-time thing. What are you going to do to prove that you are worth believing in? And they're challenging him. Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. They're saying, are you greater than Moses? Are you, you going to do something greater than what God did in the most astounding way in the life of our people in Israel? Would have been about 1,500 years before. And this is Jesus' answer. Answer number three. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So he's setting up some contrasts here. Moses versus the Father. So the, the, the Jewish people had elevated Moses to this exalted place, sort of like Sometimes churches get all, you know, starry-eyed about their, their pastor and kind of elevate him to a point where he's almost like more important to them than God himself is. And, and they, they've lifted up Moses to this, this place where he is like exalted as sort of like almost superhuman. He said, it wasn't Moses who did this, my father, God did this for you. So he's contrasting Moses with God, and then he's con contrasting the past versus the present. It says, Moses gave them bread from heaven, but my father, present tense, gives you. That was in the past. That was 1,500 years ago. That doesn't do you any good now. Yes, it's wonderful that that happened, but how does that help you now? My father now, present tense, has something to offer to you. And the contrast then between manna or bread and then true bread. So the contrast between God and Moses, the contrast between past and present, the contrast between bread and true bread. So, so what, what he's saying here is that the Father is giving the Son to His people. 
The Father is giving the Son to His people as true bread. As true, bread is a, is a metaphorical thing that, that is sort of like, you know, we, we do that today, right? And this is like old school, like, you know, slang, but like bringing home bread, right? What, is that, what does that mean? It means you're making money, right? Bread is sustenance, it's provision. You know, like there, there's other slang, you know, I probably don't know about this, but you know, it's called stacking cake. Stacking cake means you're making money and like cash, right? So we have this idea that food is a metaphor for provision in more than just sort of a, a very literal way. He's saying true provision comes from God and it present tense is available to you now. And the Father is giving the Son to the church, to His people. Now, here's the fourth question. It's not really a question. It's a response. They said, Sir or Lord, give us this bread always. Again, in contrast, Moses provided manna for 40 years. Well, give us this bread always. We want it, and we want it, and we want it forever. Lord, give us this bread always. Always. Again, they're looking for him to prove that he's better than Moses. And this is his answer. And this really is the heart of the passage, this, this fourth answer. And everything else kind of flows from this and, and to this and from this answer in verse 4. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you, you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and raise him up on the last day. And so what he's saying there is just... as. The manna in the wilderness was a foreshadowing of God's great eternal provision. You want eternal bread? I am eternal bread. How can he be eternal bread? Because he is God in human flesh. He is God, and God the Father has given God the Son to his people. God the Father has given God the Son. He says, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And he says, your true need is not physical hunger and, and, and physical thirst. Your true need is spiritual and eternal. And I am the provision that God is offering to you. So the Father has given the Son to the church. But notice here as well, the Father has given the church to the Son. The Father's given the Son to the church, but the Father's also given the church to the Son. The Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Augustine, the great theologian of the fourth century, said that to believe in him, in fact, is to eat the living bread. The one who believes eats. He is invisibly filled because he is invisibly reborn, newly planted. And that is where he is filled up. So this passage is all about faith. It's all about belief. The point of the Gospel of John is that you would believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It's all about placing your faith in Christ. This is just a, a way of him saying, I am the bread of life. I am the provision that gives life. Not for a time, 
but for eternity. Not physically, but spiritually. Jesus is life. He says, I am life and the rest is just details. He says, I've come. Now, there's so much here. I can't get, I can't, we could spend five sermons on this. We could do a sermon, a verse on this passage. I just, we just don't have the time to do that. But notice he says that I have come down not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Well, what he's saying there is that in his human nature, so he is fully God, equal with the Father, but he is also fully man. And so in his human nature, he obeys the Father, although in his divine nature, he has the same eternal will, equal will with the Father. He says, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. That, that, that God is, is conspiring to save a people for himself. And the issue for this people isn't their lack of bread, but their lack of belief. He says, I am the bread of life. This is this first of seven. We have a slide here I showed last time. Seven metaphorical I am statements. Um, So he says a number of times what are sometimes called the absolute I am statements where he claims the identity of God, Yahweh, in the Old Testament. We saw that last time. John 6, 20, again in chapter 8, and then really verse 58, before Abraham was, I am, where he's claiming ego eimi, the, the, the Greek name of God in the translation of the Old Testament, I am. But then there's also these seven times where he says, I am, and then he gives a, an explanation or, 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 or an, a, a metaphorical picture of who he is. I am the bread of life. And then we're going to see, I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. These things are not put there haphazardly. When John, the disciple, wrote this book, he put this in intentionally to show us the fullness of who Jesus is. It's like a diamond where you see from different sides the fullness of the beauty of the character of Christ. In this case, I am the bread of life. Now, when he says this, the, the people are, are really, they're, they're just like shocked and, and they're, they're, they're kind of irritated. Look at this fifth question. This is not a question they ask of Jesus. Um, so we have question five. Um, they're not asking Jesus, they're grumbling and talking to themselves. It says, the Jews grumbled because of him about him because he said, I am the bread of, that came down from heaven. Now, that's kind of a weird thing to say, right? If someone came in here and said, hey, I'm the bread of heaven, came from, from life, what would you be doing? We'd be calling LHPPD, uh, Lighthouse Point Police Department, and saying, you know, I think someone may need some help here, right? It sounds crazy. It is crazy for anyone but Jesus to say that. But they're looking with the eyes of the flesh and not the eyes of of faith. Look what they say. Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? They, they literally, they knew this, they knew Jesus from growing up. They knew his mom and his dad. They knew his family. And they're like, we know this, this kid. We know this guy. How is he saying this? They had eyes of flesh, not eyes of faith. And this is Jesus's answer. Answer number five. Look what he says. Jesus answered them. He said, do not grumble among yourselves. By the way, what did the people in the wilderness do against Moses? They grumbled, right? So they're just, he's saying, you're just like all the, all the people have been all the time. 
1,500 years and nothing's changed. You're grumbling, just like they did. No one can come to me. Now, this is, this is as, you know, in your face, unvarnished, unapologetic, straight talk as you can get. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So his answer to their grumbling is that only God can give them the eyes to see who he truly is. He's saying, you can't see who I am, and you will never see who I am. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Okay, we'll get through the rest of the answer in just a second, but let's, let's ask that, the question about, is this verse, I mean, is that, is that really what he's saying? Is that really what he's saying? That no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Well, yes, it is really what he's saying, like, because he's really saying it. No one can come. Well, now, what is it? Now you say, but that's not really what it means, right? What does it really mean? Well, what it really means is that no one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. That's actually really what it means. Now, you might be saying, but isn't that unfair? Like, or, or does God draw everyone or not some? Like, how does that, that seems kind of weird. Like, does God, is that really, is that really like, what, what does that mean? Is this unfair? Well, Paul the apostle asked the same question in Romans 9. When he says that God the potter has right to make of the same lump of clay one vessel for honorable use and one vessel for dishonorable use. And he says, you may ask, how is that just for who resists his will? And he says, does not the potter have the right to take the lump of clay and do with it what he will? So the answer to this is not, is this unfair, but God is God. That's the answer to the question. God is God. So the question, is this unfair? in one sense is no, because God is God, but in another sense, yes, it is unfair, but not in the way you think. It's unfair not because the Father draws some. It's unfair because the Father draws any. It's unfair because we all deserve condemnation, and left to ourselves, we would all reject Jesus. And so God, in His grace, draws us to Christ, and He doesn't have to. He doesn't have to, but He does because He loves us. If God is the one who draws us, then our eternal security is rock solid. If it were based on our own... Now, I don't know about you, but I... Now, you might be like, I'm married to a very decisive person. She doesn't change her mind easily. Um, but, but I change my mind all the time. Like, I don't know. Like, what? Well, whatever, you know, like if, if my salvation were up to my will to stay true, I'd be in a really, I'd be in a lot of trouble because, you know, there's a lot of days, there's a lot of days when a lot of things look a lot better than Jesus. But it's not ultimately grounded in my will, it's grounded in the Father who has drawn me to Christ. And so if you are a Christian, this should be of immense comfort to you that God has drawn you to His Son, and because of that, His will is eternal and unchangeable. He will never change His mind. God does not change His mind. And when He drew you to Christ, He didn't make a mistake. This also assures us of the success of our mission. 
Because we are called here in South Florida, Lighthouse Point, Deerfield, Pompano, Boca, beyond. The Father is the one who assures us of success in our mission. We can't, I don't know if you, wait, now, some of you may like wrestle with this, but, but if you've ever had kids, you know you cannot change your kid's heart. You can change their behavior, but you can't change their heart. But God can do something we can't do. God can change the heart. And if it were up to us to accomplish the mission of reaching people with the gospel in South Florida, we, I, I, would, I would quit. He's calling us out upon the water and places unknown where feet may fail. Yes, it's scary. But if it were up to us, I would quit because I have never been able to change a single person's heart. I'm not persuasive enough. Now, maybe, maybe you're more confident in your abilities. I don't have confidence in my ability to persuade someone to change their entire life direction, but I do have confidence in the Holy Spirit's ability to change the life and the heart of a person. And God the Father is drawing people to God the Son, and He's going to use us to do it. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, how does God draw people? How does God draw people? That's a good question. It's written in the... Oh, no, go back. He's still there. Thank you. Uh, it's written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. That's, I think, a quote from Isaiah 54. They will all be taught by God. How does God draw people? Well, how, do, how does a man woo, woo a woman on Valentine's Day, right? What's, what do they do? Candy and flowers. Now, that's kind of a stereotype now, so maybe you got to be a little more creative. But this is not a coercive, like, forcing upon. This is persuading and showing the delightful glory of Christ and teaching the hearts of people. How does God draw people? He draws them through the Scripture and through showing them that Jesus is better than any other option. When people really see who Jesus is, when people really see who Jesus is, they turn and abandon everything. That's the point of the treasure hidden in the field, right? You find treasure hidden in the field, you go and you sell everything you own to buy that treasure because it's worth infinitely more than anything you, anything you already own. When people see who Jesus really is, they turn and they follow him. So what is our job? Our job is to simply tell people and show people from the Bible who Jesus really is. And then God, the Holy Spirit, does the rest. Everyone has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. He's saying, I'm God the Son, God the Father. You can't see God. God is like, if you saw, you couldn't even like, you're, you're, you would just melt, like, like the end of Indiana Jones, right? You would just melt. And, and truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I am giving for the life of the world is my flesh. What's he talking about there? He's talking about dying on the cross. 
He's talking about His crucifixion. He's talking about giving up His life by being crucified for sinners in their place on the cross, being buried, and then God will raise Him up three days later. And He's saying, that is where life comes from. It is from trusting in who I am as God the Son in human flesh and trusting in what, in this case, was future, but in our case is past, in dying on the cross for sinners. He says, I am the bread of life. And, they, they, and then they ask this question, question number six. We're getting close. We're getting close, y'all. Then the Jews disputed among themselves. Again, this is in, they're, they're, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, they're asking this question. Jesus, look at what his answer is. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, unless you, and he, does, he doesn't soften the confusion. He doesn't say, oh, no, no, you misunderstood me. No, he goes full cannibal on them, it sounds like. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, that's bad enough, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, drinking blood, I don't have any experience with this personally, but I would imagine it's not a very pleasant thing. Well, for a Jewish person, this was was blasphemous. They were not allowed to eat meat with blood in it. They had to drain it out. Blood was considered, it was the most unclean of unclean for a Jewish person to consume blood. And he says, unless you drink my blood, you have no life in you. What's he doing? He's making the offense of the gospel more apparent before them. Whoever feeds on my flesh, drinks my blood, has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, my blood is true. He's just going all in. My blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Is this like cannibal vampire hour? What's he saying? As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, whoever feeds on me will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate, manna in the wilderness, and they died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So he's saying these things and he's like, he's using this extremely provocative language to make the point that the gospel is offensive. That unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. What's he saying? He's saying, unless you believe in my death and resurrection, you will not be saved. There is only one way. There's only one way. There's only one way to the Father. And he says, I am the way. The cross is the way. This leads to the the, the seventh question. The disciples, many of them, when they heard this, said, this teaching is hard. Who can accept it? I heard uh, David Platt preach on this passage. Some of you know David Platt is one time, and he's like, they're like, Jesus, you got to tone it down. We're never going to become the fastest growing religious movement in Israel if you keep telling people they should eat you, right? Like, this teaching is hard. Who can accept it? It, 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 it doesn't make sense. It's like weird, and, it, and then it's like, who can understand? Like, what the heck is he saying? And then for the ones who did get it, it's like, 
This is really hard to accept. Jesus is the only way. I can't go to Jesus unless the Father draws me. Like, I didn't sign up for this. I signed up for, like, Jesus will make my life a little happier and make my mental health a little better. But I didn't sign up for this. This is weird and too much for me. And this is Jesus' answer. Answer number seven. Knowing his disciples in himself that they were grumbling, just like Israel, just like the Jews, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. He's saying, you take offense at this? Like, the things I'm going to show you and I'm going to teach you are wild, right? I've heard uh, Dr. Russell Moore of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention um, and he's a, he's a really great theologian and cultural commentator, and he's talking about how offensive Christian sexual ethics are in this cultural moment, right? Um, you know, just traditional marriage and, and th- this, and he's saying people think that Christianity is weird because of that, and he's like, you have no idea. Like, the Bible teaches that Jesus is going to come back on a white horse in the sky, And you think that's, like, Christianity is weirder and more wild than you can even imagine. He says, you think this is weird. What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? He's saying, there are things you can't even wrap your mind around. I am from a place that you can't even imagine. You could never go there. You would be incinerated. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And the words I have spoken to you are spirit and life but there are some of you who do not believe. And what's he saying? He's saying again, this makes no sense. It seems crazy unless the Spirit shows you that it's actually true. Because it is true. Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. Lots of people start off well, growing up in church, I've seen people, they, they seem like, oh, they're all in for Jesus. And people, they go to camp and they get saved and they, you know, come to youth group for three and a half weeks and they're the most radical Christian. And then two months later, they're back to who they always were. Bob Dylan, right? Some of you remember when Bob Dylan was a Christian for like two and a half years, right? He was doing Christian albums. I don't know the state of his soul. The point is that People, it's common for people to have an initial burst of seeming faith. And in reality, it's not genuine. No one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They seem to be true disciples, but there are disciples and then there are disciples. There are disciples and then there are people who are actually following Jesus and in it for good. Not just when it's easy, not just when it helps in a sort of material way, not just when it makes sense, but no matter what, because the Spirit has shown them that this is life and the rest is just details. I told you it was seven questions plus one. Look, this final question, this final question, if we can go to the next slide. 
Jesus' turn to ask the question. Jesus said to the twelve, just pause for a minute. He went from 10,000 to 12. 10,000, that's like not a good church growth trajectory. Like 10,000 to 12. Like that's, that's not like, you don't usually, oh, this is a guy we need to, sh- how do you do this, Jesus? Like this is amazing. He says to the 12, do you want to go away too? Do you want to go away as well? After all of this, this is the culminating question. Do you want to go away as well? And the final answer is from Peter. Lord, to whom shall we go? Peter's final answer is this question. It's rhetorical. Who would, where, even if we want, where would we go? There's nowhere else. There's no one else. You have the words of eternal life. And we believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Where would we go? Where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And this is the culminating point. And when John wrote this story down, this was the point he wanted you to get. Where else will you go for life? Where else can you find life? Baseball, you put baseball as life. It's this last slide. We have that last slide here. Baseball is life. You can put family is life. Fishing is life. Fun is life. Sex is life. Kids are life. Porn is life. Netflix is life. Boating is life. Birthday parties are life. Brunches, killer bees. What are you going to put in that space that's going to give you life? I say, I'll put my family there. Nothing really matters but family. Your family could all die. And then where are you? You say, well, no, no I'm just going to, I'm going to put personal, personal improvement in that space. You get stricken with the disease and just diagnosed tomorrow and you, personal improvement is out the window. You're in survival mode. What are you going to put in that blank? Work. Family, friends, sports, ministry. Oh, I'm going to, serving the Lord is life. You know what? What if, what if physically or mentally you were stripped of your ability to serve the Lord tomorrow? What would be left? You would have what? You would have your identity as a child of God. Jesus is life. To whom are you going to go? Where are you going to go? What are you going to put in that blank? There's nothing but Jesus. And the rest is just details. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your spirit inspiring these words for us. And Lord, there's so much in this passage and didn't even do close to the the justice it deserves. But Lord, the point is clear that Jesus is life. The rest is just details. And so Lord, now all all we need, Lord, is for your spirit to convince us that's true. I can't convince anyone. No one can even convince themselves. But you can convince each and every one of us. You can convince South Florida. 
that Jesus is life. And so, Lord, we pray that you would, that you would use us, you would use us to help people find life like you intended them to live. You would use us to pour into the lives of each other this abundant life. Lord, we ask in Jesus' name these things. Amen.